From Koningstein Road in the east to Cetus Gap in the west, an orange curtain has descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hey dear listeners, Brad Radigan, editor of Ojai Quarterly and Ojai Monthly. Our guest this episode is Mark Frost. Mark is co-creator of Twin Peaks with David Lynch and started his business in Hollywood with the with the uh, Stephen Bochco produced Hill Street Blues, epic TV shows that changed the industry for much the better, I believe. And he has been through four strikes. So who better to come in and talk about the strike, especially from the writer's perspective, and what they've gotten out of it and what how it may play out over the years, over the next three years before they have to figure out a new agreement. And Mark, uh, we talked about a lot of things. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Hey, Mark, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here, Brent. Yeah, you've been on, uh, you've been a guest of the pod before, but that was during the <clears throat> early days of the pandemic. Yeah. And I remember I recorded in my car, you know, doing it over the phone because <laughs> it's fabric and it was actually a pretty nice sound booth. I had, I had forgotten that. Yeah. It makes sense. It's a homeless person sound booth. (laughs) In case a homeless person is thinking of starting a pod. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so the uh, main reason I wanted to have, not the main, I just wanted to catch up, but the writer's strike is over. And what does that mean? Is there like a backlog of energy and projects going forward? Or is people slowly getting their footing? I think... The the strike happened in response to a drastically changing paradigm in mm. the industry, where um, the old what they call the legacy studios and broadcast entities <clears throat> were being um, overrun by the business tactics of the streamers, the Netflixes, Amazon, Apple. Coming from the tech world with huge uh, bankrolls who didn't need to depend on success in this one sector for the overall health of and their who business. do not share numbers whatsoever. And, and that was shocking. They, they had, Netflix had been sharing numbers from the beginning with European writers mm. and producers because <clears throat> law required it in many of those countries. And here, because they could get away with it, they didn't. There was a, a suit settled uh, for a, a movie that Sandra Bullock did for them just, I think, last November, maybe maybe more recently than that. For them, that, Amazon? F- uh, no, it was Netflix. Netflix, um, That the writers, <clears throat> uh, star, and producers were owed $13 million in back-end money and residuals that Netflix had no intention of paying because they will not tell you how your project has done. It's one of the reasons I've never wanted to work there. It's, it's not a, a healthy environment, I think, creatively. Um, anyway, that's, that's number one. They broke the model, or at least they induced the other companies and networks and studios to abandon their model, which had worked without really... Um, much complaint for half a century. Mm-hmm. 
that uh, was relatively transparent compared to what they were doing. Sure, yeah. Um, and you can't manage what you can't measure. Exactly. And they were also, and I, this may have been intentional, they decided that they wanted to produce shows that came in much smaller bites in six or eight or 10 or 12 episode Yeah, the series. Commitments. Limited series, yeah. Um, and that to them constituted a season. Now you could say, well, that's great. That gives me time to do 10, 12 hours with maybe the kind of care and attention that most things need. Mm-hmm. However, um, they also weren't paying network rates. So if anybody was on these shows, they not only would keep you for the for just those 12 shows, which was a limited number of months, um, they had a hold on your ability to work anywhere else. For the what duration? For the duration for of the year series. Off, yeah, in, a in year. In many uh-huh. cases. Um, on lockdown. And they were making writer rooms smaller. They were mm-hmm. um, doing what they called mini rooms to break stories ahead of things getting picked up. Um, and they were depriving a lot of people of a, a living wage, mm-hmm. um, both in the number of hours they were offering and in the, and the money they were willing to pay for it. So um, I was lucky. I came, I came of age at a time when the networks were making 22 to 26 hours a week. Yeah. And if you were on a network show, <clears throat> that was a good living. Yeah, a, 22 episodes, <clears throat> uh, right? Yeah, 22 to, I mean, 26 at some, 26, and some of them. The, the nighttime soaps tended to churn out 26. Yeah, sure. um, so it's a different, it's an entirely different way of doing business. And uh, from what I had heard from people who were working with these companies, they were trying to break the, the labor market so that they could control it. And um, and that the, and people would be grateful. Has there been memos leaked and so forth that they've there shown have intent been. there know. have been that, that, that so it's this, a strategy it was a strategy Not and just a haphazard way of getting what they want and there was a kind of arrogance that comes certainly from the Tech silicon gross. valley types yeah. and and the wall street types masters that, of the universe yeah they really believe you know they've they've got it all worked out they it, they just don't need anybody else mm-hmm. except to the degree that they Get Dole dis- out little disbursements. Yeah, they'll they'll give you a few crumbs if yeah. you if you're uh, willing to bend the knee and kiss the ring, and um, so a whole new generation of writers have come into a an industry where they can't make a living wage, where they were having to t- to do maybe they'd get a writing gig, but they would have to support it with another another job, maybe two jobs. Wow. Uh, if you wanted to have a family and rent a house or an apartment even in Los Angeles, good luck. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, this was an eye opener. Um, and the other even more existential issue was their, they were tiptoeing up to using artificial intelligence, feeling that, well, and, and I know for a fact that studios were doing this. They were feeding every work in the public domain into their... The large language models. Yes, into uh, their chat GPT or their version of it um, in the hope that they could train this non-eating writer to yeah. produce works. Very low upkeep. <laughs> just give it a few electrons every now and then. Just a, just a little surge of electricity, and yeah. it, it, that's all it requires. It's like It's literally like the... 
it's Santa's elves, you know, who are going to write the shows. So um, now that sounds horrific for for anybody who's really a writer. The idea that this this is it feels like a Ray Bradbury or Rod Serling story. It does. Um, Twilight Zone. For the actors, it was even more dire because they wanted the ability. Um, uh, SAG and After I should mention also covers background performers now, people yeah. that we used to call extras. And um, for the 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 fulsome price of one day's work, they wanted to come in and scan you, mm-hmm. get all your measurables, put you in one of those mocap suits, and then they owned your image. Per- perpetuity. In perpetuity. So you were basically out of a job. So, I, yeah, I heard point. one actor got paid $100 by Disney for his biometrics uh, image, his, his identity. Yeah. So you, you couple that with things like the deep fakes they're now able to do of, of obviously, Hump, movie stars. Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, and, living and dead. Yeah. Um, now, most of the estates of those people, because I've dealt with them on a couple of occasions, they, they own the mm-hmm. image and a trust. So if you want to create a movie that has Bogart or Jimmy Dean or Marilyn Monroe in it, you have to pay for the rights to do that. Um, There's a lot of actors who weren't in that position. So um, they were facing an extinction-level event, I think. And um, it was also of great benefit to the labor market that the two guilds were willing to support each other. It was, yeah. I remember it was just the writers. It seemed like, you know, they were out there on a limb. They were on an island. Um, the only other time they had struck together was in the early 60s, before, before my time. And that was, that was what... TV, right? Yeah, that's what gave us residuals. Yeah. And a, and a health plan. I mean, um, that changed the lives of all those people. Now, I, I think the the history of the Writers Guild as a as being in the vanguard of the American labor movement is a great story because the the guild started in the 1930s in response to brutal workplace conditions imposed by the studios. And they were feisty and they were smart and they were most of them from New York and playwrights and yeah. they just didn't give a damn, you know. They Yeah, well, a lot of them made their way through Ojai. Michael Wilson. That's right. Paul Jericho. Yeah. Dalton Trumbo. Dalton Trumbo was here. Chris Trumbo, his son, who I knew, was here, mm-hmm. and his wife, his widow, is still here. Yeah, um, Nancy. Yeah, Nancy. So um, it's it's a it's a proud history uh, of of a, a a group that's notoriously fractious and yeah. Well, those rare moments of solidarity they can really change history. And and it and it points to. What I thought was interesting was that they were the tip of the spear in in this fight back against this kind of big capital. Yeah. And you saw suddenly IATSE and the Teamsters and UAW and other unions. And this may be because we have a union-friendly president for the first time yeah, in quite a long yeah, time. Sure. Um, coming back and saying, you know what? The, if the world's going to exist, it, it can't just be you uh, call on the dance and, and we just sit here and put our tap shoes on and yeah, work not, till uh, we drop. It's not soda jerks. No, no. It's, it's a world where th- there has to be some kind of cooperation and, and sharing. And 
and, and particularly for writers who are very often the originators of an idea or a story. Yeah, it's the, their intellectual property. The, the creator, yeah. I mean, yeah. I've I've taken great care in, in my work to try to hold on to as much of that as we can. And uh, uh, David Lynch and I happen to own the copyright of Twin Peaks. It's our property. Yeah. We did not sell it to a studio or a network. You're not doing uh, merchandising and memorabilia? Well, we have. I mean, we and we certainly well, have the opportunity to well. do that. Yeah. But um, it's, um, it's a model that isn't even possible anymore. Um, hmm. unless Why is that, though? Why are they entitled to your intellectual property because it's just they're negotiating like we, you're not you want to get paid we're going to have to yeah turn it you're over. going to have to fork it over so um it's, it's not that way in publishing it's not that well it, it did happen that way in recording mm-hmm. you saw we saw what happened there once napster and then um streaming came in for the music industry just ask yeah. a musician how, how they're doing these days it's yeah well be prepared for a depressing conversation yeah so that's what we were looking down the barrel of in in my end of the business. And thank goodness, you know, we put up a fight. And mm-hmm. and by all measures, they kicked butt mm-hmm. in terms of what they ended up getting. We we basically checked all the all the boxes for what we were looking for. So what's the big point? I I heard it was like whatever the pay raise was, it wasn't super consequential, but I think there were other issues that were more well, there pertinent. were there were more guarantees to uh, more writers in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think they got some slightly longer guarantees on how long terms of employment would be. Uh, in the feature world, where, where I've spent more time uh, than in television the last 20 years, uh, the, uh, there was a plague of what they called the free rewrite, where they would just simply Demand come to you. Rewrites yeah, the time. producers of the studio would say, come on, you know, just give us a Give us some more pages. Yeah, and um, and a lot of people did. I've refused to do it. I mean, which is, I, I didn't... Well, you've been around. You've I've been around. I, I, I just thought, you know, yeah, you want me to work? I'm going to... Then um, you have the privilege of paying me to do it. Yeah. Uh, so... A lot of those things moved in the right direction, and we got, I think, some relief on the AI. Um, it's not everything that we were asking for, but but it's so hard to even know what, what how that's going to shake out. Yeah, well, we don't know yet. Um, yeah. What we do know is that they're playing with it, and um, anybody who's got a computer and access to uh, those kind of files can make their own at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen some of the AI yeah. programs. They look great. I mean, yeah, you've got I a mean, lot of motion capture. You can put your characters and you can make them however you want them. Yeah. Look. Well, I think that's fine as long as it's done by the people whose creation this yeah, is. Rather than wage slaves. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, honestly, if there was anybody who should be looking over their shoulder at AI taking their job, it should be studio executives and <laughs> and uh, people who have to justify their their gig by you know having endless browbeating bro- lunches yeah other uh, other right <clears throat> i mean my sympathy is obviously with uh, the creative community and um i think i think we we came out of it uh, as as well as could have been expected and yeah uh, my guess is if they can re- if they can resolve the AI issue satisfactorily, I think the SAG uh, talks will get somewhere soon as well. I hope. 
Um, there's still a lag time between, you know, now that the writers are back to work before they're ready to produce them. Mm-hmm. There's there's probably a period of some weeks or months where, so they may feel like they can take their time with the actors a little bit more. I, I don't know. I'm not, yeah. I'm not in the room. But. Well, I definitely get the sense that the studios and writers shouldn't be at odds. I think the real enemy is big tech. Yeah. I think these people don't care about the product. They have no love. I mean, you know, I had Hawk Koch on here, and he yeah. comes from the producing oh, side. Of course. And he, oh, he's, you know, he's, he loves films. You know, it's a it's magic. He's one of the great guys mm-hmm. in the business, you know. And with his um, family history, the way he grew mm-hmm. up around the business. Yeah. I, I mean, his I, blood. Yeah, I had that to some extent, too, with, with my dad and... Um, um, but from stage, though, right? No, stage and television. He was the, he was the um, stage manager and floor director for the Philco Playhouse in oh, the 50s. Fine. And um, before he started acting, and he was a, a good director. He worked with Lumet and Frankenheimer and um, Del Man, um, you name it. Anybody who was working in that business came through that studio. Yeah. So um, it's it should be something that is done by the people who enjoy doing it. and Rather than people who just have big money and they're just looking at us purely algorithmical uh, products. It, it's, it, and they, it, it's my understanding that Netflix intentionally makes their website awful to navigate because what they want you to do is enter the walled garden and close the door after you and mm-hmm. keep you there until you that's why it's hard so hard to find things it's 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 not intuitive you know no it's not it's like the other services that always has you know last last watch or continue watching and yeah it's like going into costco after you've had a a, a blow to the head and trying to find <laughs> something very specific you know I, uh, that's all intentional it's it's um these are people who i mean say what you will about the people who started this business mm-hmm. they loved what they were doing. They loved the movies. The studios were in the, in the business of pleasing the public and giving Mm -hmm. them what they clearly wanted and taking some artistic gambles and and frequently people, you know, it's that Henry Ford maxim. If I'd asked my customers what they wanted, they just said a faster horse. Yeah. Yeah. These films are much the same way. There's no, it's not a, not a product that can be just, put up on a shelf it's not like making rubber bands or no, gumballs you know no. it's, it's the way that stories connect to us it's so difficult to figure out how it happens and when it does you can't reverse engineer it no although they they certainly they're are sure trying. trying they're trying it's it's a um it's a sad pass to have it come to this but um i hope that the creative community has learned a lesson here that they can they can put up a fight and they mm-hmm. can if they they're willing to take some time off from mm-hmm. getting paid it, i mean i've been through five strikes now and yeah they with with i think one or two exceptions that mostly ended in a way that both sides could say okay we can live with mm-hmm. this and yeah. uh, and then you know you went back the to give work. and take yeah yeah I'm, I'm thinking about the uh you know the studio or the what was it that's tweet that was go, circulating around about, uh, oh, yeah, what are these actors and writers are broke and can't afford their mortgage payments? And and then, you know, yeah. then there was retweeting was, you don't, must not know any writers or actors if you think they're 
they're used to being they are used to being out of work for long stretches That's of right. time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was the it was the stupidest Most tone deaf thing tone deaf and one in so many different ways. Um, so I think it's uh, you know it's the battle will always be there between capital and labor. It's just yeah. it's baked in, um, but the industry still seems to have the ability to turn out a miracle every now and then. Oh yeah, um, and when that happens. It all seems worthwhile. Yeah. I, well, Mimi later said hello. Oh, nice. I, yeah, I had her. Uh, I heard she has a place ago. here now. Yeah, she's been here for a few years. Yeah, I, I only just found that out. Yeah. Well, she yeah. remembers you from the Bochco days of oh, Hill of course. Street Blues. Yeah. 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 She was. Uh, that was like a golden age for her. I feel it, like she. It was for me too. Yeah. Business. Yeah. No, we we were uh, in the right place at the right time. Yeah. How amazing. Oh, and. Uh, I may, may have made the mistake of comparing elements of her show, the way that the flaws of the characters have on the morning show, uh-huh. to David Milch, because I could see that <laughs> I could see that sort of brokenness that these people carry around with, yeah. and how that you know those little cracks are where they reveal themselves mm. the characters. And she seemed to be okay with it, but then she told me a story later that maybe I'll tell you when we get off camera. Okay. Right. But uh, you know he's <clears throat> he's pretty much gone now. No, I, I know. And I, David was a very close friend of mine. I knew him really well. He was um, so brilliant. Yeah, I read his memoir. Did you read the memoir? Yeah, of course, it was yeah. sad. I mean, yeah. No, he had a. Um, there's the reason he turned out the way he did. Uh, it's uh, well, I, what he had to put up with from his father. Yeah, it was crazy. And then this lifelong addiction, you know, to manage that. I know he was on methadone for most of his life. Yeah. And then the gambling, like the harrowing tales of his degeneracy at the racetrack. I, I went with him a couple of times. I mean, it was, I don't know if you've ever read, um, I'm, I'm going to blank on the name of the book, but Bud Schulberg wrote a, a book, The Disenchanted, wrote oh, nice. a book about um, his father was... Um, uh, a, an executive, at, I believe, at Paramount, and um, as a young man, he was asked to. And one of their writers was a somewhat dissipated on the far side of the downhill slide, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and he accompanied him. Um, I guess as a sort of babysitter to a minder. A minder. Um, Fitzgerald was going back actually to where he used to live in St. Paul to appear at what was called the Winter Festival. And um, Bud wrote a fictional account of this extraordinarily odd and awful I'm gonna look for week he spent. It's, it's quite a book. Um, I, I, Get I was the Greek, huh? Yeah, that's basically the idea. So I went, I went as David's minder a couple times. As Stephen took me aside and said, yeah, go with him, will you? To Vegas. And... Um, I had similar experiences. But isn't that just the, is that what, because, you know, Dostoevsky was also a degenerate gambler. Yeah. Do you feel there's something in peering over the edge of the abyss? Yeah, it's the thrill of it. I, I had never been with anybody who had who had that serious say. Do you think that's part of his genius? Or just incidental? Because mm, there are great writers who are not gamblers. Like yeah, that. no, it's, 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 it's incidental. It's, it, it's, he's a great writer in spite of it. Yeah. Um, Whatever it is that they see when they're peering over the edge, being able to bring back those dispatches from 
beyond, you know, it's, it's, it's like, sometimes it's hard to watch. It is. Yeah. But that's, that's the human condition. That's how we connect. Well, that's part of what artists have to offer people. It's, you want to really know what it's like deep down in the dark, if that's your interest, mm-hmm. there are people who can show you that. Yeah. Uh, I wonder why there. they've never done a Fred Exley, uh, what was that book, that wonderful book with his drinking problems? Um, oh. Say, a Fan's Notes. A Fan's Notes, yeah. Yeah, about Frank yeah. Gifford. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that book was like so acute psychology in there. It's fantastic. I yeah. wonder why nobody's ever tackled that. I think maybe too dark, huh? I think too dark, yeah. 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 But even today's yeah. today's world, I think, you know, that leaving Las Vegas or... Days yeah, you know, I mean, the works of Charles Bukowski. I mean, there's plenty of people. Oh, I love Bukowski because he yeah. got the feel. You know, he was toiling away in a post office or whatever. And yeah. he got to be rich and famous. He did. Yeah. I he mean, he was did. like when he was 50 years old or something, he got a big sale. And- it, re- it reminded me, you know, Melville worked in the customs office yeah. in New York for most of his adult life before he could make a living. Um, so... Some there's some writers who think having a mundane day job, mm-hmm. as they used to say, I'd sell my soul from nine to five and buy it back at night. Yeah, um, that's a great expression. Yeah, they, that's a hard way to live. I I'm I was more interested in being able to yeah do what I wanted to do and make a living. So yeah, I was well, lucky like, enough yeah, to be Zane able to do Gray that. Zane Gray was a dentist, right? In Tarzana. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'd forgotten he was a dentist. Yeah. That's an odd day oh, wait, job. Is it, is it him or Edgar Rice Burroughs? Uh, what, who was a dentist? Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was, it was Zane, Zane Gray. Gray. Okay, I, I never that knew up. that. I never knew Interesting, that. Interesting, huh? Yeah. yeah. And Earl Stanley Gardner was a lawyer in downtown. Yeah, right Ventura. down here. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I have a wonderful photo of uh, Bill Clark when he was elected mayor or uh, elected sheriff of Ventura County in 1922. And then the photo credit is Earl Stanley Gardner. Oh, no kidding. Because they were like best buds. In fact, huh. he wrote a bunch of stories about Clark because he was just such a frontier sheriff, you know. Yeah. Really good stuff. Well, that's yeah. cool. It's, they, were, they were among us all the time, you know. The weirdest thing I ever, it was like one of these, you know, I don't know, was I got a tablet or something, but they were like free stories on it already stocked. Really? And one of them was a collection of dispatches from um, who's wrote uh, 10 Days in October? Jo- John Reed. Reed. John, John Reed, Reed, yeah. About his embedded his with Pancho Villa yeah. in Mexico. In Mexico, yeah. But he was like one of the dispatch. I mean, that was fun, all the action of these battles and how they would, you know, ter- take over these trains and mm-hmm. try to run them right into the, you know, Diaz's troops. And it was just, I mean, Pancho Villa is such a fascinating character. He really was. He jerked America around for months <laughs> and months. We spent... Tens of millions of dollars trying to track him down. Chasing he was just him. laughing yeah. at us the yeah. whole time. Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, first time they did aerial bombardments. That's right. It's interesting, huh? Yeah, it was pre-World War One by about, what, four or five years? Yeah, it? 1910 yeah. or yeah. 11, 11, 12. Yeah. But the thing that was, he was, Reed went to some festival up in the mountains. It was like three days by Burrow, and these people would come in, and they just get shit-faced drunk, and they tend these plays, like these... Passion plays are like more like panto, and mm-hmm. he was just noticing how these characters were so allegorical, like you, you know this evil, satanic like figure. But mm-hmm. how people 
love that guy. You know, the actor would show his personality through this this kind of gleeful evil and how everything, it was like La Luce or something. But yeah. it's like, uh, it was like he goes, but John Reed was like 22 or 23 years old then. Mm. And he was just having this this insights about how Shakespeare evolved out of that mm-hmm. tradition of those like passion plays. That's true. And it was really fascinating. Like he, he could feel that that culture was capable of producing a Shakespeare, but because of circumstances and geography and everything else, it just never happened. Never happened. This was before he went to yeah. to Russia and then died of typhus. Yeah. yeah. But he's the only American in the Hall of Soviets. So uh, I still think about how Warren Beatty got a major studio to give him three and a half hours two $250 million to make Jesus. a movie about socialism it's about a communist yeah. and uh, it, and it's a brilliant movie and, yeah I haven't seen it in a while I, I need to go see it well he interviewed a lot of those people you know all the oh, survivors they were at, the, at the end yeah. yeah I mean no they're sprinkled throughout the, the some of the folks who were actually there uh, at the at the time it's a it's a Pretty amazing piece of work. Oh, I gotta go see that again. I probably saw it when it came out when in like the eighties sometime. It was early eighties, yeah. 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 Quite a work. It was his magnum opus. Yeah, he'll probably never get another project like that again. I think he's pretty much hung up his spurs at this point. Yeah. He he's was not gonna do a Clint Eastwood. I don't think so. He was my next door neighbor for a while in, really? in LA, yeah. I knew him a little bit over the years. Fascinating guy. Um one of the great um, singular careers in the oh, yeah. f- spanning from the 50s to the 90s. I mean, very hard to work with, very demanding. Oh, um, perfectionist? Yeah. I mean, he would take 120 tr- takes without Jesus. thinking twice. He and Kubrick had, I, they, I think they were competing to see who could put the exhaust actors through his the actors. Most. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I had. Um, Malcolm McDowell for the 50th anniversary of A Clockwork Orange. Oh, nice. Can you believe it's been 50 years? I can, oh, yeah. God, it makes yeah. me feel old. Yeah. But yeah, that was fun hearing his Kubrick stories. Like that scene where where um, Alex gets dunked in that tank by the bully boys. Mm-hmm. And it was so perfect, though. The, you know, the droogs, of course they're going to become cops mm-hmm. in this neo-fascist state. It yeah. just goes so easily. It just reminded me of like the... Uh, what do they call those proud boys and such? Yeah. Yeah. Really. Uh, well, Burgess saw all that coming. Oh, man. He was so, he was brilliant. Yeah. He just, he wrote this book about his dad called uh, uh, Joanna Jumper. I think, maybe, I think that was the title of it, Joanna Jumper, because he's a music hall piano player. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how, you know, he could just, if he could just hear like two, two notes, he would be able to ding into the key. You know, he'd hear if it was off key or on key, and then when it was in key, then he would just uh, go away. That's pretty cool. He was, and it wasn't that there was any great particular, you know, ear or mastery to mm-hmm. it. It was just knowing where to get into the rhythm, where mm. to, once you get in tune, then away you go. Mm. But what a life his father had, you know, playing for all those movies and those dance hall culture, you know, that Charlie yeah. Chaplin and everybody came out of. Yeah. I think Anthony Burgess is a um, really underrated. I do too. He's writer. one of the great voices yeah. of the 20th century. But how he came up with that whole society, you know, he built that the Clockwork Orange, just weird. But that was sure fun talking to Malcolm about that. Yeah. So what about yourself? Are you working on anything? Well, I've been working <clears throat> for 
a good number of years now on a play, uh, which I think we've spoken about. FDR? The FDR play, yeah. yeah your, your uncle? Uh, that my uncle was FDR's secretary from wow. 1934 to, I was with him on the day he died in, in Warm, Warm Springs. Warm Springs, Georgia. And, um, April something, 1945. April 12th, yeah. Um, 1945. Six days before Hitler killed himself. <laughs> he missed, that's, that's, how close, that's how close he came to seeing, seeing the end of the war. And he was hanging on because he wanted to, finish the job yeah you know that blood pressure would have been so treatable now there's no reason i should have killed him at age 63 because i struggle with hypertension i've had all my life yeah and just what was available to me was available to him yeah who knows he would have lived into his 80s yeah well um they also the whole idea of Cardiovascular health was a brand new topic. Yeah. It was a brand new subject I think of like study. Digitalis was like the that was first it. thing. That yeah. was the only thing they had to treat him. Um, and he was dying of congestive heart failure, and no one knew. His doctor thought he had a sinus infection. Oh God! And it his, sounds like uh, Garfield his, when they're just poking around the wound, you know, making it so much worse. His doctor was the Surgeon General of the United States. Oh God! And an admiral stumbling around in the Navy. And, and blindly. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's been a fun project. And I'm also um, doing a book about the same subject, about their relationship in that period of time. Do you have diaries and such? I have, yeah, my my uncle, this all started because my uncle kept a diary during the war, during the war years that was, he went on to do the same job for Truman for seven years. Wow. And um, that would have been a good comparison, I think. It was, and he speaks about it uh, with great eloquence. that would be interesting. So yeah. you're going to do a Truman chapter? Or maybe uh, I may up? at the end of, of the book. There wasn't room in the play because the play is so focused on on the two of them and the relationship and the um, this sort of struggle he had to hang on to life long enough to see, see the war to its end, yeah. which he was determined to do. Well, he knew that they'd won by that point, I feel. Like he did. April, yeah. He did, but he also had in his mind... But Japan was still up, up in the air. Oh, it was up in the air, know. but um, the die was cast. And what he was convinced is that we didn't have to just win the war. We had to win the peace. Absolutely. And his model for that was the to take the alliance of all the, what he called the United Nations, who had fought together and create a world body... That would he was a globalist. He, well, saying? he was he was somebody who thought that everybody deserved a seat at the table. Um, he was an anti-imperialist, a traitor to his class, a traitor to his class, and um, to Churchill's chagrin, he was a he felt that the death of British imperialism was a. a oh yeah, a, Churchill fought against uh, India's independence his yeah, whole life. His whole life, and yeah. and. Uh, as FDR said to him, do you have any idea why these imperial troops that you're depending on in these far-flung territories have never won a battle? Yeah. Because you won't take your boot off their neck? I mean, maybe you should take a look at that. Uh, So it was, uh, they were brothers in a way. They were actually cousins. They were seventh cousins. Oh, yeah. Um, I could see that. I know his, his mom was American. Yeah. His mom, yeah. Yeah, his mom was um, my sixth cousin. Really? Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. Is it, do you get this from uh, 23andMe or DNA Trace or is um, it family, family lore? lore. Yeah. And, and then backing it up with uh, Ancestry.com was the one I used. But, wow. Um, you must have to go. Well, yeah, and you have to go back seven generations. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So uh, we went back considerably further, but um, it was great. Because, I mean, and I was had the good fortune of my family ending up and coming into the country in Massachusetts where they kept... Very detailed records. records yeah, of, the parish records. Yeah, were, births, deaths, yeah, marriages. Great bureaucrats, those Puritans. They really were. Yeah. They really were. So, um, yeah, I, I, that was a, a fun trip. I had um, something I'd always been meaning to do with my mom, who loved this, and she passed about a year and a half ago. And so I thought, well, maybe now's the time to do it. So I, did, mm-hmm. I did, was able to discover all that. I'd love to see it. Yeah. Pages. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, thanks. Well, the... Um, thing about you know one of one of the things about fdr that fascinates me is this partnership with eleanor mm-hmm. you know after all they went through with lucy mercer yeah. and and uh, you know how they stuck it out and just you know because he couldn't get around i know it's uh, when I, I went to public schools and you know a very impoverished area in new york mm-hmm. in chautauqua county in the mm-hmm. great lakes area and there was like these ladies would come around and teach us how to brush our teeth Hmm. and sand, wash our hands. And that's Eleanor's legacy. Oh, that was yeah. her that got yeah. those programs into school. I'm sure they don't do any of that now. Well, but I remember it was a big deal. They'd have those little stain sticks that would show up where you didn't brush. Uh-huh, I remember those. Oh, the, um, they had an extraordinary uh, working relationship. Mm-hmm. The, the marriage had ended some decades prior. Yeah, 1917 or something. Uh, was, was when she found I, the letters yeah. that um, uh, between he and the woman who used to be her secretary. So it mm-hmm. was uh, it was a rupture of. Uh, I feel like Eleanor, as genius as she was, had that insecurity about her looks because she was so big and ungainly. But well, you she know, had her beauty in a way. She did, and her, her the young picture, the young pictures of her belie that to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, she was she had a tragic upbringing. Her uh, she was Teddy Roosevelt's niece. Mm-hmm. Um, her father was Teddy's younger brother. He was a hopeless Drunk. alcoholic. He died when she was nine, eight or nine, and her mother died when I think a year later. But the good um, thing she got sent to that school in England, Mademoiselle Sylvester. Yeah, in Paris, yeah, yeah. That was a famous. She was a famous lady. She yeah, to meet uh, Emile Zola and all the yeah, and that intellectual currents that swirled through there. I think that was her formative period. Really. That's where she gained some sense of uh, self worth, being able to speak in public. Yeah. And she was quite brilliant, as many of the Roosevelts were. So, um, you know, they got married very, very young, mm-hmm. and. Had a bunch of kids right away, and uh, none of it was quite what she thought it was going to be. So no, I don't think she was meant for a traditional marriage. No, no, she but too, she would have been a great president. I think she would have. Mm-hmm. She was an extraordinary person. Yeah, I think she was just so the the level of empathy that she had. Yeah, you can't duplicate that. It's no. not. It's just so innate, and I think part of her comes out of her struggles too. Definitely, with FDR, have polio knocked that that uh, fr- you know that uh, twenty three skidoo uh, you know callow youth out of him. It completely made him who he was. Yeah, um, and I, I've always felt that what he went through when he finally didn't, you know obviously didn't find a cure, but he found um, treatment for um, 
to alleviate the pain. But what he really found was companionship at, at Warm mm. Springs with it was a broken down resort with yeah. mineral hot springs where he could mingle with these poor, often indigent people who suffered from the same condition. And um, it woke him up. It, it made him a great man, uh, which he had self-admittedly had not been up to that point. He'd been yeah. a, a privileged and a bright and a energetic guy. Um, but it was really that that turned him into the person who wanted to make things better for everybody else. That's, and he did. Like, and he did. Was he your favorite president? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't decided. I'm, it's between him and Lincoln. I'm well, reading a Carl Sandburg biography of Lincoln mm-hmm. right now because they yeah. got that book cart down there, and there's wonderful stuff oh, coming nice. through there. You can see I've got piled up. Yeah. Piled well, up. I mean, Lincoln only had a few years, you know. We, oh, I mean, yeah. He a, died at the right time reputationally because if he would have had to manage Reconstruction, that would have been it, a total it would have, mess. It was, a, it was a nightmare. It certainly was not helped by having Andrew Johnson in charge. But Oh, no. Um, it's just unrepentant. I think the body of work... And the, the length of time, which will never be duplicated because they changed the rules. For the FDR, him especially. For, Just in time for Dwight D. Eisenhower not to get his third term. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Eisenhower's an underrated president, you know. Oh, he, yes. Um, uh-huh. he, uh, he did a great job. He understood leadership, for sure. Yeah. Well, so, here's that great quote I use all the time. Uh, what's uh, important is seldom urgent, and what's urgent is seldom important. Mm. And I've... Yes, that's very true. Because we're all scurrying around from one crisis to another and not thinking about, you know, down the road. No. How we're maneuvering ourselves into, you know, a better position. There's a, I think it's a concept in Hindu mythology that, or, or in philosophy that you, um, you'll be walking blithely through the jungle and never know that you're in danger until you see the tiger in front of you. It's the tiger over the next hill that you need to be worried about. And that's our problem as human beings. Uh, we're not seeing the tiger over the hill. Um, no, we're just too immediacy bias. Yeah. Um, we have plenty of Cassandras who've w- shouted the warning that mm-hmm. global warming is going to be a lot worse than you think it is. And, I don't know how we're going to manage that. Yeah, I, I, I still like think... We left a mess for our uh, kids and their kids. Yeah, and it's weighing heavily on them. As it should be. Yeah. Um, do you know T.C. Boyle? Sure. Do you know him personally? I've never met him, but I like his work. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to have him on the pod. Oh, cool. But he's got that book now uh, about global warming. Mm. It's just dark and funny. That I sounds just, like him. Yeah. yeah. How he manages to balance those two. It's, it's uh, a real talent. Yeah. So, you know, the... Back to the writer's strike. Do you feel, you know, I had saw this on Quora. I don't know. I get sucked into Quora. You know, somebody will pose mm. a, a question and then I can't get away from it. Yeah. But there's one, uh, some uh, South Korean guy was talking about, <clears throat> somebody said, well, how much does it, you know, animation studios, how much does it cost? And he just broke it down. It's like, you give us the characters, you, the script for your pilot can be an hour long. Mm-hmm. We will work with you back and forth to divine, des, you know, the design of the characters, how they're going to look, everything else. We'll animate it for you for about sixty grand, mm. and then you give us, you know, for the next twenty-two minute episode, it'd be about twenty thousand dollars from there on. So you could do a whole season for, you know, 
less than half a million. That's remarkable. I didn't even know. That's why yeah. I'm watching this show on HBO now. Harley Quinn, you know, DC yeah. comic hero. Yeah. It is so funny. Really? It's like three jokes a page. The characters are awesome. You uh-huh. can see the develop through the seasons. Unfortunately, I binged all four seasons in like a month, so I don't know what I'm going to watch now. But I'm just thinking, what a great way for a writer to just have complete control over their product. That's the, that is the one advantage of technology is that the, it's now within reach. If you've got a little bit of chutzpah and you've got some talented friends, there's really no limit on what you can do as a calling card, certainly. Mm-hmm. And the means of well, distribution a, are a lot easier. So Yeah, I feel like this is a final triumph of communism now that mm. the, uh, you know, the workers control the means of production and yeah. the information, intellectual age. Yeah. yeah. Or at least some of them do. Some of them do. Yeah. yeah. The rest of us, I think it's going to be a much longer slog. Mm. So um, baseball, I definitely want to talk about baseball yeah. because your nephew has yeah. been been in the game a while now, and you probably sit and watch him play a lot. Quite frequently, huh? yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, well, he had a strange odyssey this year. He um, he began his career as you know, Lucas Giolito is his name, mm-hmm. um, and he's a big big boy, right? Six six two forty, right? Big guy, right handed pitcher. What's his fastball? Uh, 96, 97. Um, but good movement, a great movement with his four seam. But uh, there's an odd thing uh, that they track now with pitching called carry. And because his arms are so long and his body is so long, he actually starts throwing the ball about a foot and a half closer to home plate than, than most people. Mm-hmm. So 96 can look like 98. Or ninety nine, mm-hmm. because it it doesn't the, the whole idea of a the ball gravity is trying to pull it down, mm-hmm. so it will its arc will tend to degrade. His will tend to fly a little straighter yeah. and a little longer. That straighter trajectory, which means if you want to throw somebody a strike out of the zone after you've uh, tantalized them with a couple of low and away Get them to chase. sliders, yeah. they'll chase out of the zone because they're used to people's fastball maybe topping and cresting and coming down a little bit and his doesn't so it must feel like a rising to uh yeah there actually is box. no such thing as a rising pitch. i know i've heard that but yeah. i have seen but I you were a pitcher so you know you oh man you, yeah you remember i mean baseball is my religion yeah yeah mine too um so he uh was drafted by the washington nationals um traded really before he Made it. He had a cup of coffee in the bigs and was traded to the Chicago White Sox, who were the, the Nationals were trying to chase a championship for their aging owner, and they needed and an they outfielder. Did, and they did. They finally got one. Um, so Luke ended up with the rebuilding Chicago White Sox. That's where you want to be, right? It wasn't. A, it was a good spot for him to land, and they had a couple of good years where things kind of seemed to come together, and then it all fell apart, um, as often is the case. But uh, it's too long to go into all the where's and why's because I don't think your constituents are probably all diehard Chicago White Sox fans. But um, he a lot came of Cubs fans. I know more North Siders than South Siders. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he came to his walk year, the last year of his rookie contract, which is six years. You, you were four years. Hmm. Um, it's with three years of arbitration. So that you so you can start to get bumps in your salary, but there's still a ceiling. Mm-hmm. 
And in his last year of uh, before he was going to become an unrestricted free agent, the White Sox announced, and they because it's their history, they've never signed a pitcher to a second contract. Why is that? It's Jerry Reinsdorf. He he doesn't like to spend money, yeah. and um, so he trades away the Chris Sales and the Jack McDowells and and the the pitchers who come through there who are talented, the Carlos Rodons. All these guys end up somewhere else so it was time for that uh for luke this summer and they dealt him at the trade deadline to the los angeles angels where an an owner was also chasing a championship and the faint hope that he might be able to keep shohei otani who's also a free agent this year yeah wow on so he brought six players in which pushed him over the luxury cap which means that if you if you keep your payroll over a certain amount, for every dollar that you spend, you have to pay two dollars in penalty to the league. This is a punishment. For, it's a way to try to equalize the small and large yeah, markets. Sure. The Steinbrenner it, with, rule with limited success. But um, so Luke got there and through really no fault of his own, the team immediately went on a nine-game losing streak and was completely out of the picture and had no hope to... And then Otani blew out his elbow, and he was done. Is he going to be back next year? He's had... The Tommy John he's had Well, he'd, he'd had Tommy John in 2018 or 17, okay. but it turned out this was a rupture at the other end of the ligament, which I'd never heard of before. Hmm. It, it attaches in two places. Normally, the first one is the one that gives, but in this case, it was the the other side. It must be some torque in his in his. And, well, motion. it's his, it's it's the it's the, the it's slider. the pitching motion. It's yeah. yeah, and the and the twisting. So, um, they were two days away from uh, the waiver deadline, which is the end of August. Mm-hmm. At which point, you, whatever your salary cap is is then enshrined for the next year. So he was facing the having to pay this penalty. So he decided he would put all six of the players he'd brought in like five weeks before on the waiver wire and would then no longer have to pay their salaries and it would get him back. By that time, it was clear they weren't going to. They weren't going anywhere. So he got picked up. And the way the waiver wire works, if you're you're put on waivers, uh, every team has a chance to sign you and pay the rest of your salary for that year from the worst record to the best record in that order. And the, he was grabbed by the Cleveland Guardians, who were, I thought, equally in no Helpless. place to go. Or they yeah. were six games behind the, the Twins in the, in the AL Central, and they didn't make a push. And, and poor Lucas had been on three teams in, in a month and seven different cities. Yeah, and, barely knows where his locker yeah, and, is. And, you know, the, th- the thing that fans forget about the, these guys is they are human beings. They're not robots. And these things are upsetting to uh, p- pitchers in particular. Oh, You'll my God. To this. We're all head cases. They're head cases, and they're creatures of routine. You, mm-hmm. you need the same routine on that five-day cycle when you mm-hmm. work and recover and prepare and pitch again yeah and when you don't even know where you're going to be in the middle of next week so he was just by the end of the season he was pretty fried so he's he's back home he'd gotten a place in chicago and set his residency there but 
a week after the World Series, uh, all the free agents will be free agents, and they can negotiate with any team they want. So, has he had any feelers? Any conversations? Nobody's allowed no, to say this is that would be tampering no. right now if anybody did that. So, is his agent packaging up a bunch of players or something like that? Um, well, they they have more than a few who are free agents, so yeah. they're they're tending to their their flock, as it were. But um, we'll we'll know first or second week in November, I think. Yeah. Well, there's some funny, there's a funny baseball, Ohio baseball story, I'll tell. Um, 1912 World Series, Game 7, dropped fly ball, Fred Snodgrass. Oh, yeah, Fred Snodgrass, yeah. He, he lived in Ohio for many years. Did he, he really? He was born and raised in Ventura. Oh, I had no idea. He had a nice house here. He's a lawyer. I think he was on the bench for a few years. He was the mayor of Oxnard. He no, was a mover kidding. and shaker. Who knew? Well, certainly not the New York Times when he died. The first thing in his obituary is, you know, Game 7, 1912, World <laughs> Series, boner. Here's this guy with such a pillar of the community and such a bright and earnest, engaged, and All they could think lived of this was, rich life. He was the Bill Buckner of his era. Well, it wasn't, and there were other heirs before that. It shouldn't have come down to him. Yeah. But, you know, Babe Ruth did the same thing. In the uh, 1926 World Series, Game 7, he got caught stealing. He was like, you know, his excuse was, oh, I thought it was a hit and run. Mm. But he just was naked and exposed. And that, that cost him it. the series. Yeah. yeah. So they, they came back. They made up for it last, the they, next year. They were murderers row the next yeah. year. So, yeah, they made up with it with a vengeance. Yeah. Just baseball is so quirky like that. Well, it's it's like no other sport. It's it's these guys. It's a it's a true marathon to to yeah, put your body through this. Games, my it, God. It's there's no other sport that makes those kind of demands on you. Um, I mean, football you get beat up, but you only have to yeah. do it 17 times a year. So. 82 games in uh, basketball. Yeah, 80 in hockey. <clears throat> so um, it's a bit of an outlier, it, it, and I think it's a it's a a remnant of when baseball really owned the sporting imagination in this oh, country, yeah. and it was a summertime pastoral Spectacle. experience that yeah. um, was woven into the fabric of everyday life. So uh, we've actually expanded. You know, we went from 154, which is what it was for a long time now, up to 162. Um, yeah. The players I know would certainly Be happy with would, would appreciate a few more days off somewhere yeah. along the line. What was that quote about? Abner Doubleday, he had a poetic form of dyslexia. Where other people saw square fields, he saw diamonds. Hmm. I always love that. That just has a nice ring to it. I was just reading about Doubleday, and I'm reading about the Civil War, as I often do. I'm reading Stephen Sears' great book about the Battle of, Ch- the Battle of Chancellorsville. Hmm, um, that was uh, Grant, uh, Tennessee, right? No, Chancellorsville was... Uh, um, Chattanooga, I'm thinking of. Yeah, no, uh, it was, was the a, prelude to Gettysburg. It was the last big battle... You know, Lincoln couldn't find a general for the longest time. And he had gone from McClellan to Pope, back to McClellan. Yeah, that's where I'm at at the McClellan stage in the okay. Lincoln biography right now. Yeah. I'm learning a lot about him. You know, little Mac, he was he was kind of a devious little arrogant He was a pill. Prick. Yeah. 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 And um, so the guy that replaced McClellan the second time was the guy who whose name actually gave us the word as we now use it, Joseph Hooker. They used to call the camp travelers, the, the women oh, really? who followed his army around, Hookers. I never even thought that's about where the, that. That's where the name came from. Nice so uh, this was, Hooker was a controversial figure, but he was a brilliant soldier and a great uh, 
a strategic thinker, mm-hmm. and he had he was the first guy who was truly a match for Lee. Mm-hmm. Tactically and strategically, yeah. Grant didn't have much nice to say about Lee. He thought he was vastly overrated. Well, I mean, personally, I I put him in the category of he was a traitor to his country. Well, but, he thought he was a, a patriot to his state. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I don't know, man. I just you know the idolatry of the lost cause and all. I just don't like it. It's all of it's all a um, uh, the result of that botched. Reconstruction, which was a, you know, once it was taken out of that election of seventy six, where yeah. they had to make a deal. You know, Garfield. it went right up to the. Yeah. No, that was um, was that Samuel Tilden and Rutherford Hayes. Oh, Hayes, right, so, which went to the to the uh, that's the, uh, the, the House of Representatives. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Tilden ended the election with one shy in electoral college. Right. And so they get all the other states ended up going for Hayes. Right. And it went right down to the last, you know, March 4th inauguration before they made their decision. Yeah. To just basically just hand it over to the Republicans in exchange for killing off Reconstruction. That's right. But the sad thing was that Grant, who another person I feel is an underrated general or and um, president. And president. And president. Because he really got after the Ku Klux Klan. He did. Have you read Cherno's book, Ron Cherno's book? About oh, that? yes. I loved it's it. It's a wonderful book. Yeah. yeah. That's where I was really thinking, wow, this guy. You know, I, I vaguely remember the scandals and Belknap and the, the tainted beef they sell to Indians and all mm-hmm. that stuff. But he was incapable of finding, of seeing duplicity because he had none. He was so no. ingenuous. Yeah. He just couldn't even imagine that people would be crooked. And then he had his aide de camp who was with him all the time and kept him off the bottle. Right. And when that guy died, then, you know, all the scoundrels moved in. Yeah. It was His tragic. son was mixed up in it, too, as I recall, right? Uh, his son was son. the one that got, got him broke with the— uh, With the stockbroker Yes, uh, that scandal. Deal, yeah. yeah. It's a shame. Um, yeah. There's a wonderful book I'm sure you've read about— um, the last year of his life when Mark Twain took him in hand and mm-hmm. published his memoirs and saved him financially. And saved and, his family. Yeah, yeah. The, but the relationship of the two of them, I always thought that would make a great play. It would. Well, Mark Twain was very clear that he had nothing to do with that wonderfully written biography, that that was entirely Grant. That was Grant. He was doing it while his jaws falling off from the cancer. Yeah, and yeah. He was just. He died know. the week after he finished it, I believe. After oh, he yeah. finished copy editing it, he was yeah. definitely preparing himself. Yeah, yeah, it's remarkable. I'm, I'm telling you, readers, if you haven't, or listeners, if you haven't read Grant's biography, autobiography, you should. It's just it's, it's literature. It's one of the great American books. And one of the you know just the witness to history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. remarkable stage. I just, I don't know what it is about the Civil War. I just feel like. How's it going to shake up this time? Well, we're refighting it. Yeah. It well, I feel me. like we haven't even finished. Yeah. I mean, it's still yeah. that sort of, yeah. you know, to me, it's like the, uh, you know, divine rule of kings versus the, you know, rights of man. Yeah. And I see the, you know, what happens is that the Republicans are kind of lined up in the, you know, patriarchal, uh, mm-hmm. you know, shut your mouth and get back to work yeah. kind of attitude. And it's like, that wasn't how they started, you know. Well, I uh, I was reared in the uh, the shadow of FDR, so you know where my alliances lie with all of those issues. Yeah, what a what a man. Yeah, 
And I just feel like the future, I don't know, Harry Truman, I feel like, gets a bad rap sometimes. Where My uncle was very fond of Harry Truman. Yeah. Felt he was an authentic, warm, uh, decent, kind human being. Mm-hmm. And uh, much easier to know um, than than FDR had been, who was who was a, a Chinese puzzle box. Sure. Um, and uh, Truman had so little time to prepare for that job. He'd been in the vice president's office for six weeks when FDR died. Uh, he'd only met him a couple of times, and. Um, he had Can a big he had a big load to to shoulder. Yeah. Did you see Oppenheimer? Oh yeah. Yeah, I don't I, he didn't come off well in that, but I guess that's pretty accurate about uh, I think get that, in terms, get that weak li- uh, guy out of here. Yeah, that one I mean it it you see him through the lens of that one moment he mm-hmm. spent with Oppenheimer and it's unsparing, but I think it's accurate from what I've read. Yeah, but with the context of his time and the decisions that he had to make, I just Think. You know, he integrated the military. You yeah. know, I was in the Air Force for six years, and yeah. it was like 40% black when I was That's there. right. Yeah. I think that was a, a real—I'm I'm a big believer in that there should be some kind of national service. Yeah. Everybody should get together for two years and, you know, bridge all these socioeconomic Would and racial a, gaps. And make a big difference. I do feel like there was a that moment in the 70s and 80s at that level of young people who still had that common cause. Mm-hmm. That, you know, really. Um, well, the peace, the peace corps came out of that to some extent. Well, that yeah. was kind of JFK's response to the um, Civilian Conservation Corps, which had been FDR's big yeah. innovation. Oh, our friend uh, John Brazenly yeah. was writing a book on the CCC, right? Yeah. Do you know what happened to that? Where it is? Um, it's being published. He found a publisher uh, the week before he died. Oh, I'm, I got to get that. I gotta yeah, get I that. wrote the foreword to it, and it's uh, coming out. I think early next year. I mean, the lives that that changed just, and again, that's the common cause, you know, yeah. people are working on a mission and imagine the pride they carry with their lives, you know, oh, that's my bench. I built that or, yeah, cause I do that on the weekends with the, uh, land conservancy on the, mm-hmm. you know, 27 miles of trails to maintain the last couple of years. It's been a nightmare, I'll bet. you know, go out on those work parties. You put in half a day hacking away with a pickaxe and a shovel and, and uh, sometimes you got to chisel the rocks out of the, you know, to rebuild some of these trails. And man, you really feel a sense of accomplishment. And That's you great. Sleep like a baby. <laughs> sleep like a baby. It's good, honest work. Yeah, yeah. which is hard to come by these days. Mm. I know people say. What do they say? Hard work never killed anyone? That is such oh, bullshit. No, no, that's, that's probably the leading cause of death. That's, that's what Simon Legree was telling people, I'm sure. But <laughs> while he was cracking the whip. Oh, man. Just hard work never killed anyone. Yeah. So what was it? I was, oh, um, I listened to your, you know, the the uh, funeral service. I was in Nashville with my son, Brazen Lease, and I thought that was really well oh, done. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. I thought the uh, Memento Mori and Marcus Aurelius, you know, I've, he he was a stoic. He I was. Like, especially he was. towards the end, you know. It's yeah. like you can only control your emotions you know well i had uh john and i talked about stoicism a lot because i'd come to it years ago and and so had he and where did um, you come to it i i found it um i just found it through the meditations of marcus aurelius i picked up the book in my late 20s 
And um, I went, why aren't more people talking about this? Yeah. Because this seems to me to be the blueprint for living your life in a way that is self-respectful, that is um, uh, thoughtful of other people. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. It keeps the larger picture always in mind. Um, it encourages humility. It encourages mm-hmm. devotion and perseverance. I mean, it's all the qualities that we we at least used to value that we and, and that we still should. I I I think if anybody wants a a, a blueprint a blueprint. Uh, there's there and there's you don't have to. There's all sorts of modern interpretations of Marcus yeah, Aurelius Ryan, too. Ryan Holiday's made yeah. a whole the Daily Stoic. The Daily so Stoic forth. is a, yeah. I, it's right. It's next, It's yeah. on my. It's on my phone. I mm-hmm. I read it every day. Yeah. To me, I came through it through Thomas Wolfe. Mm. Not no. I'm sorry, Tom, Tom Wolfe. Uh, what was that book about that developer in Atlanta and all his troubles? Oh, the um, Bonfire of the Vanities. Uh, no, I oh, think no, it was the, A Man in Full. Oh, A Man in Full. That was the one after the Bonfire of the Vanities. Yeah, well, yeah. he was, you know, this guy had just a horrible, terrible life and mm. everything w- went wrong. And then he ended up as the trustee of the library in the prison where he was sentenced. And Boethius' Consolation of Philosophy was, you know, just happened to be there. And then he just... And I think he ended up in a correspondence with the, uh, you know, the main protagonist. That was a really good book. I enjoyed that book. Yeah, I read it when it came ever, out. Like as a practice, the first yeah. time I ever yeah. thought about that. And, and it is a, it's something. It's that's why it's a thought of as a daily thing that you need to check in mm-hmm. with. Yeah, because uh, what was it? Uh, Orwell said the uh, to see what's in front of your nose takes a constant effort. Mm-hmm. Isn't that true? Particularly today. I mean, um, I talk about this with my son a lot, the, the bombardment of um, media and sensation and um, things you're supposed to be doing. Social media has changed human life mm-hmm. and uh, not necessarily for the better. Not definitely that narcissism that's just run rampant. Yeah. And I think when that narcissism hits that nihilism that so many young people, especially young men, have, it's toxic. It is. Toxic. It's deadly. It can be deadly. It's really like a, it's been been rough. So um, anything else going on you want to talk about? Oh, you got me here. <clears throat> I think that's, we, we've kind of covered, covered the waterfront. Quite, quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. we started out with the strike. Maybe we should wrap up with that. Yeah. So how long do you think it'll be before the next strike? If you were to cast, look into your crystal ball, what do you think are the these contracts are usually, I think, three-year terms. So, um, at least in terms of the writers, mm-hmm. um, presuming that they get the the actors thing squared away, uh, we'll go around on this three years from now and see see what happens. Hopefully, it won't be a strike. I, I just yeah. would love the big tech titans to be brought to heel because I feel like that's a driving a lot of the toxicity well that may require some antitrust oh regulation from i feel uh, like europe's they're working on it yeah know? they are i feel like they're we, way ahead of us in the regulatory space. well we used to have a little bit more um willingness to take on i mean think about the breaking up of at&t back in the day and yeah um, Bell. The, the, picking all the baby <clears throat> bells that that when a the the 
regulations are there for the good of, the, of everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, plutocrats aren't particularly fond of that idea. And um, so they spend most of their time trying to convince people that those are terrible ideas that, have, that are materially going to make normal people's lives much worse. And they put a lot of effort and money into that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And social media has made that a much Amplifies. more expedient yeah. way to do it ah. and to, to amplify it. So um, when you can talk people into voting against their best interests, um, because oh, you're uh, able grievance. to in, because you're politics of grievance. you're able to in, incite or uh, flatter their grievances or their hatreds or their mm-hmm. fears. Uh, that's often how we end up with autocracy. So yeah, I'm reading that uh, Barbara King Solver book, Demon Copperhead. Yeah, David Copperfield and uh, Appalachia. Yeah, Appalachia, and that's much to that theme. It's yeah. kind of in the background. It isn't like. You know, she doesn't lead with a, the mm. politics of yeah. of these places, but you can really feel it. Like it's it's the you know like the opioid crisis. Those are deaths of despair. Yeah, they are. Wow. Anything? Are you watching anything right now? That you're, um, <clears throat> let's see. I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, Killers of the Flower Moon oh, in a yeah, couple of weeks. I can't wait, yeah. I've read the book and um, yeah, I read it some years ago. Enjoyed it. I, I hear it's extraordinary. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to Ridley Scott's Napoleon, which is coming. Yeah, out. I got problems with that because I saw the trailer and they show the soldiers shooting the shooting the news off the Sphinx. That's fake news. That that, it, that didn't happen. Yeah, I didn't yeah. like him going there. Yeah. But you know, it used to the project was called Kit Bag before, and that's the quote about every and every corporal's kit bag is a marshal's baton. Mm. And I think that was. The theme he was driving at. Mm. Here's somebody from a very humble background, yeah. too, who really uh, that was the that to me that fascinates me. Starting with the American Revolution, or even with pirates, even mm-hmm. is that battle between the rights of man and the divine rule of kings. And During, they, they lost. They, Napoleon won. Yeah, he's the neoliberal world is a create. He made that possible. Yeah, no, he it, he proceeded to lose his mind shortly thereafter, but. Um, and made some terrible mistakes, but his heart was in the right place. Clearly, yeah, he was on our side. He certainly yeah. gave. It was no, no coincidence that the British invaded America after it was clear Napoleon's invasion of Russia was a disaster. That's right. Yeah, they were they were coming to take us back. Yep. So just him as a major, just as him as a distraction alone, allowed us to get our feet underneath us. That's true. Well, and and material aid from France throughout that period. Oh yeah, was, and they sowed um, the seeds of their own destruction. Didn't yeah, they? they did. They did. Yeah, Very they were so so eager to get at the Brits and didn't realize that once those, you know, you're not going to put that toothpaste of freedom back in the tube. No, it doesn't fit. I during the pandemic, I read. Basically, two books. I read. I can't remember the author's name. I read a gigantic biography of Napoleon. Which oh, never uh, read. David Roberts. Yes, I think that's the one. It was oh, about twelve hundred pages. Yeah, and then loved I read. It. And then I read War and Peace, which I'd been putting oh, off. Yeah, I've got that for my entire yeah. life. I think I've got through a quarter of that. There's a new translation that was quite brilliant, and I stuck with it. I read a chapter a day, and I started on the day the pandemic began, and it. I think I finished it on the day it ended. It oh, took wow. that long. A year and a half. Yeah, almost, yeah. It was a, quite a project. Yeah. But. I think that, um, 
you know, the Napoleon Project is going to be a sweeping epic. And mm-hmm. when, when Malcolm was on there, we talked a good deal about that because Kubrick did Clockwork Orange yeah. because they wouldn't give him the money. To do the Napoleon And then when movie. that Waterloo yeah. came out with Rod Steiger and it was, was a that bomb. Ser- that was Sergei Bondarchuk's version, yes. wasn't it? Yeah. And I thought that was a good movie. Yeah, it was good. I thought I'd like to though, rewatch that actually. I wonder if it's Yeah, a, I thought it was well. That was like the available. last of those where they were actually tripping horses and stuff. Yeah. I think yeah. that was one of the films that got them off yeah. that. But wow, I mean the thousands of extras and I mean, I can't wait to see how Ridley Scott manages those scenes, but Stanley Kubrick spent 20 years chronicling. He had the largest collection of Napoleona. I know. It's crazy. They had a, a traveling exhibit there that went to Los Angeles. I didn't get to see it. I really wanted to. Was it his stuff? Or it was Kubrick's collection oh, of no Napoleon kidding. artifacts. Oh, that would have been fascinating. Yeah, because he was obsessed. Yeah. I read the script. You know, he had the uh-huh. earlier script from 68 or 69. And it was basically, you know, here's a mama's boy with a slutty wife. Yeah. But the explanations and he had like four or five different voiceovers mm-hmm. so it was a little i mean i'm sure in a film it would have been easier to follow but when you're reading it it's like who's who, who who's who yeah. to? have you ever seen desiree uh, oh with a marlon brando Where brando plays napoleon i have i i don't remember that being particularly struck it's not but his performance is actually pretty good he's yeah. he's really sort it's it's not his story it's the story of this young woman who had a kind of flirtation with him and who later became the queen of Sweden. Um, uh, with uh, Bernadotte. Yeah, exactly. He was a French guy. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it's worth seeing just to see Brando inhabit Napoleon. Yeah, um, I'll check that out again. Yeah, it's, you can fast forward through a lot of the rest of it. But, but yeah, I mean, what an actor. Yeah, was it uh, Ian Holm, I think? Uh, N- um, In Time Bandits played Napoleon. Uh, well, this he was signed to Earth, signed to play Napoleon by Kubrick. Oh, Kubrick, Kubrick was use, oh. but he, you know, he couldn't get the movie made, so yeah. he had him on the shelf uh-huh. at home for a year, and he, you know, he told uh, we ran into Malcolm in London somewhere, and he was like, you know, I just wasted a year of my life on this project; it's mm. never going to get made. Mm. And then he had another actor lined up too, but you know he was determined to make that film and he just never got to i just felt it was a real shame there, were, there was talk of jack nicholson doing it at one point yes i think yeah. later in the 70s it was yeah. like it kept kept coming up they call it the greatest film never made mm. yeah anything on tv been been um there is, and I, I'm hard-pressed to think. I know. Isn't that weird? What it would be like this? A, like a, really watching these shows and enjoying them. The, there's so many, you know, that um, they don't necessarily linger in your mind. I mean, I loved The Bear. Um, oh, my God. The Bear is quite that a... That season two, episode six, where... Extraordinary. A family there's, dinner. I couldn't believe how good John Bernthal and... Yeah. And... Uh, Goodness, I'm blanking on her name. Tony Curtis's daughter. Oh, Jamie, uh, Jamie Lee. Lee. Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. No, she was amazing. And then I, I actually liked the second one just as much. The one when, um, uh, Eben uh, Bachrock Moss goes to mm-hmm. work at the restaurant patterned after Liana, I think, or mm-hmm. El- El- Elena, Elenia. It's a very fancy restaurant in Chicago. That um, oh yeah, well, Grant, with, Grant Oshots or one of those. Yeah, um, and uh, Olivia Coleman plays the. Oh the, yes, that, yes. Oh, she's so good. Yeah, yeah. It I love a, the little, uh, you know, the cameos and stuff they do. There are so it's, amazing. It's yeah. first rate. Yeah, it's yeah. really first rate. 
and the, and the, the one chef who didn't really know, the pastry chef, he didn't really know what he wanted to do or how committed he was and what am I doing. And then he goes to that Noma-like place in yeah. Scandinavia. And you just yeah. see, there actually you was see Noma. I think they showed it Oh, really? Noma, because yeah. it's been closed for a while Yeah, now. and that's where the writer had studied. He was oh, a, really? He was, he was a one chef. of those free, the free labor? Yeah, he'd been amazing? there. Isn't that amazing? It's like $700 for these meals, and yeah. and they have they don't pay their employees, and they still lose money. I know. That's, I don't know what a, why well, people go into the restaurant business. I'm so glad they do. Thank gosh. But what a yeah. business. It's not. It's pretty it's rough. Tough. Yeah. It's pretty rough. But yeah, that show is really phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, thanks, Mark. really appreciate this. Thanks, it's been Brett. fun. My pleasure. Hey, everyone. Brett Bradigan here, just thinking out loud. Uh, one of the things I didn't talk to Mark about that I feel you should know is that he is very active in uh, con- conservation issues in Ojai. Is one of the key board members and past presidents of the Ohio Valley Defense Fund. The Defense Fund was started back when we had a big truck um, or plans to open some rock quarries, other uh, industries that were going to bring, you know, hundreds of trucks a day coming down the Highway 33 right across from Nordoff. And, it was going to change Ojai in very dramatic ways. <clears throat> and there wasn't really much we could do about it since it's all Caltrans projects for permits. But the local effort that was founded, which helped defeat those trucks, defeat that permits for those gravel quarries and such, was, you know, another one-off. And if you look at the history of Ojai, we have about every 10 years, we have an existential threat. It used to be gypsum mines in the Cespi. It was uranium mines on the back side of Lake Acetus. The landfill at the foot of the of Monson Canyon, just on the way into Ojai. So they come up all the time. So what would be a better way to handle that? And they come up with, John Brazenly especially, what about a fund and pledges and money to hire attorneys to fight these situations before they even come up, before they get their permits. Now, we're not always fighting a rear guard action that we can actually have a deterrent. And that's the key word, deterrent. Because a lot of these developers, you know, like that big golf course project on the other side uh, by near Rancho Matilha, 220 some acres. There was another 10,000 home, 10,000 homes around the lake project even earlier. So why do we have to keep these says they're coming up. Why don't we have a bit of a, a signal to these developers that, whoa, these guys have millions for defense. And so that's how the defense fund came. But anyway, Mark has done really good work with that. And uh, I didn't feel like we got that. Just thought you should know. Anyway, that's it for this episode of Bohai Talk of the Down. Keeping an ear out for you. <laughs>